Now, uh, just let me get ready a bit. Huh? <laughs> Okay, let's pray. Let's open with our prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this um, opportunity to worship you together. Lord, as we come together, would you please grant us uh, ears to hear your word today? Would you also give us hearts that are open to you? We commit this time into your hand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, great. Now, <clears throat> I don't even know this, but one of the problems that religious people always seem to have is this ability to rationalize, right? This ability to find reasons or excuses that will explain away uh, our actions, our beliefs, right? Even if we know or suspect them to be wrong. Example, everyone's doing it. If I don't do it, someone else will. Or it's just a little lie. No one ever needs to know. No one will really get hurt. I can't help it. I'm only a human. If you have my problem, you understand. If you have my job, you understand. But you have my wife or my husband or my children or my boss, you understand. Or maybe, you know, I don't have a problem. I'm okay. I'm good. Does, do all this sound familiar to you? Does it hit a little closer to home? We can find all sorts of ways, creative ways, to rationalize what we do, what we say, what we think. It's been done since the beginning of time. Adam and Eve, they were the first expert. My wife made me do it. Or the serpent made me do it. Right? And the Jews in Jesus' time, they were also expert. And so some of the early Christians also, and even today, modern-day Christians. We are experts at this game. It's a game that we play in our head, right? So that we don't feel bad about ourselves, lah, so that we feel good. And the more we play this game, the more we become, we become practiced at it, then we could come to that point where we might say we don't really need God, and that's dangerous. So today's text, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 48, warns us against this danger of self-rationalization or self-justification. And the passage is part of the Sermon on the Mount, right? It's part of Jesus' teaching uh, to his disciples. And it's a long passage, but the main ideas are in verses 17 to 20, and the supporting texts are in verses 21 to 47, that, that large chunk on uh, murder, adultery, and so on. And verse 28 stands by itself as a conclusion to Jesus' teaching. But before we jump into the passage, uh, I just want us to understand a bit about the word, uh, the law. Because we're going to hear it mentioned several times in the sermon, and I don't want us to get confused by it. Like, which law you're talking about? What law you're talking about? So this word, it appears many times in the Bible, over 400 times. And it doesn't always mean the same thing. Depending on context and usage, it can mean different things. It can mean the Old Testament religious system. It can mean the Mosaic law, given to Moses on Mount Sinai, right? It can also mean other things at other times. Now, in the gospel context, it's usually referred to the Mosaic law, right? And there are three, uh, generally three aspects of the Mosaic law, the moral law, there's the Ten Commandments that we all know, right? And then there are the ceremonial law. These are laws that concerns worship. And then there are civil law, laws that governs how society functioned at that time. And then there are some laws that actually we find 
interesting that we don't really know what to do with. So do not cook a young goat in its milk, in the mother's milk, right? Don't plant your field with different kinds of cells. Or don't wear clothing of two kinds of materials, but our shirts today have two kinds, right? Cotton and polyester and all that. And of course, uh, do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip out the edges of your beard. I think some of our, our times, men, they cut out the side of the head like Daniel here, right? <laughs> I don't. I still have my hair here. Oh, but I'm sorry, I don't. I clip off my beard. I don't keep my beard. Okay, these are some interesting laws that actually we don't know what to do about. So which part of the law is still binding? That's the question, right? All the laws, all the Old Testament laws and all that, uh, which, which one is binding, which is not? Uh, some Christians will say, um, will say that the Old Testament religious system, that's not binding and that's true, right? We don't practice animal sacrifices anymore because of Jesus' death and resurrection, right? We don't do that anymore. And some will say the civil law that governs society at that time. That's also true. We cannot really practice them to the latter, right? Different time, different place. Although I think the principles underlying these uh, civil laws, even ceremonial laws, that, that we don't do away with, right? But what's really binding to us is the moral law. The moral law, right? The Ten Commandments, the basic uh, law there. And also um, all the, all the um, laws that derive from the Ten Commandments. Of course, there are some Christians who will say this, right? That, uh, you know what? The Old Testament doesn't apply. The whole of the Old Testament doesn't apply. How many of you know of people who, who think like that? I do. They say, you know, they, they love God, they love uh, the church, they attend church, they're part of the church, but they believe that the Old Testament doesn't apply anymore. It's done with because we are now under grace, right? And so the Old Covenant with this angry God, uh, that's done with, right? But I want to tell you, that's, that's not right thinking. Because if you ask Jesus, what would Jesus say? He would say the law is here to stay, right? The law is valid, it's still applicable to us today. In verse 17, he says this, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Apparently, at, at the time, some people thought he, came, he comes to destroy the law, remove the law. Perhaps they saw him, I don't know, healing on Sabbath rest or they saw him eating with the sinners, prostitutes, and yeah, he's a lawbreaker. So the law is no longer valid. He's breaking the law. He's removing it, right? But no, he says, the law is here to stay. Don't think I've come to abolish it. Don't, don't, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. The law here being the five books of um, Moses, the Pentateuch, and the prophets are the prophetic books. He's not, going to do, he's not going to do away with any part of the Old Testament, not the least commandments, not even the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen will be removed. Now, how many of you know what the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet? The smallest letter is called Yod. It looks like a half a letter, right? Almost easily missed and inconsequential. Jesus says, no, that's going to stay. And do you know the least stroke of a pen? That's when you cross a, a T, right? Or when you do a, a Y, the, the tail on the Y. Some of us do it with a flourish. I do, you know. So Jesus says, no, not, not the least letter, the smallest letter, or the least stroke of a pen will be removed. Now, some of you might think, these very minor details, like what? You know, letters and alphabets, what has they got to do with God's word? Yeah? Actually, a lot. 
because in Hebrew writing, any differences in the letter or in the writing marks uh, can bring together a different meaning. Now, I know some of us, we don't know Hebrew, but so I'm going to use it, um, I'm going to use the English because it's the same in English too, right? So consider this. I am now sending you the money. I am not sending you the money. Any difference? Big difference, right? Just one letter, T. Or this. A woman without her man is nothing. Or a man, or sorry, a woman without her man is nothing. Any difference there? Big difference, right? Which one is true, by the way? <laughs> Big difference. Just one letter, one punctuation, you know, one writing mask can make a difference. It can cause misunderstanding, it can create conflicts, it can break up relationships. Now, the point I want to make here is simply this. The entire Old Testament is here to stay. Every word, every letter, even every idea and meaning contained in the word, those will not be removed. Not until he has done the work God intends it to do, which is to speak to us, to speak his will to us. Which means the law is still valid, it's still operating now. We are still under the authority of the law. Which law is this, by the way? Not the ceremonial law, not the civil law of Israel, but God's moral law, his standards of perfection for our lives. This includes the Ten Commandments and all the biblical moral principles that we can find in the Bible. These are timeless, universal, they apply to us. So don't think that Old Testament is done with. Yeah? It's called Old Testament, not obsolete testament. I think some of us will say this, right? I'm old, but I'm not obsolete. Not yet. I see there are some of us uh, elderly people in, in the congregation. I can, yeah, some white hairs. So yes, don't think that the Old Testament is done with. It's not. We are not to dismiss it. We are not to disregard any part of it, especially those parts uh, that makes us uncomfortable, those parts that um, pricks our conscience, so to speak. Yeah? We have to instead accept all Scripture as God's words. Right? They, are, they are useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and it is training in righteousness. So this brings me to my second point. So the first point is the law is still valid. Even today, we cannot escape that. And the second point is the law is the measure, measuring line for our, our righteousness. Our righteousness is measured by our conformity to the law even greater than that of the Pharisees. So we've talked about what is law. Now what is righteousness? What is righteousness? Most dictionaries will define it this way. It's behavior that is morally right or justifiable. But the Bible says it's more than just behavior. It's more than just what we do. It's also what we say, what we think about. It's, it's our heart. Right? It's the totality of our being has to be righteous. And I like this particular definition of what righteousness means or is. It's a life record worthy of God's acceptance. A life record worthy of God's acceptance. What does that mean? It means that everything we do, everything we say, everything we think is being recorded, is being written down. And at the end of our life, God will open up this record, our life record, and we'll see everything that we have done, 
that we have said or thought about. And God is going to use that, going to use the law to judge our life record, to see whether we qualify or we don't qualify. That is something for us, for each one of us to think about. Is our life record up to God's standards? Have we been rationalizing away some of the things we do or say that we know is not right? I want, to, I want us to look at verse 20. Um, because verse 20 is a very significant verse. It's also a surprising verse, right? For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. It's emphatic, huh? the word surpasses, which means Jesus is making a, a point here. Your righteousness must be greater than that of the Pharisees. Now, most of us tend to view Pharisees in negative light, right? They are the bad apples, the rotten ones. But you know what? They are actually very zealous, very devoted in their obedience to the law. And for Jesus' Jesus's disciples to hear this word, well, sure, they will see that, yeah, the Pharisees, they will see them as this faithful and pious keeper of the law. And so Jesus will, it was, they will understand that, oh, Jesus is telling them to be like the disciples, right? To be faithful and devoted to the law, even more than what the Pharisees were doing. But it's a surprising statement for us, right? Because we know this, right, that that's the wrong way to earn God's favor. Right? The Pharisees trusted in their obedience to the law, in keeping to the law, in their external conformity to the law, as the means to gain righteousness. And we know that's not the right way to earn God's favor. So, to us, this statement is surprising. It's Jesus advocating a salvation by works, by telling his disciples to be better than the Pharisees. What do you think? Now, it's not that hard to understand, uh, to grasp the significance of uh, Jesus' words. If we can understand something about the Pharisees, something that most people in Jesus' time uh, probably did not understand, right? So the Pharisees were right in their devotion to the law. That's something commendable that we should, you know, follow. But they were wrong in the interpretation and application of the law. They were wrong in the interpretation and application of the law. What do I mean? Now, how many of you play football, by the way, or love football? Or... Not this group. <laughs> anyway, how many of you know the term what moving the goalposts mean? Moving the goalposts, what does that mean? I think some of you will know, right? Most of you will know, right? It means that you change the rule or you change the criterion in such a way that you have an advantage, right? And parents with young children, you will be familiar with this, right? Imagine a game is going badly, a football game, right? And the little boy is losing. So instead of trying to do better, the boy changes the rules of the game. He moves the goalpost. He makes it wider or he makes it nearer to him so that it's easier for him to score. I don't know if Pharisees play football in the timeline. I'm sure the football hasn't been invented yet, but you can imagine the Pharisees running in the field in their ropes, you know, trying to score goals, right? And failing badly, 
they move the goalposts, they loosen the rules, so that it's easier to win. And that's how they misinterpreted God's law. They loosen the rules. They relax the challenge, the demands of the law. So that it's easier for them to score on the righteousness card. How did they do it? Well, it varies according to the form each law took. So for certain law, they reduced the demands of the law. Right? They, they made the demands of the law, they made the law less demanding to follow. So example, the prohibition to not murder, you shall not murder. How did the Pharisees interpret this law? Very simple. They reduced the scope of the law that limited and say this is only the physical act of murder, homicide, the taking of lives. Well, what's wrong with that? Murder is morally wrong, right? What's wrong with that? I ask a question. Anyone of you here, of us here, have murdered anyone recently? Anyone murdered somebody? No. Well, I hope not. <laughs> but no. And that's great. Good. So you got one checkbox ticked in your righteousness card. Wow, so easy. <laughs> so easy to follow the law. Never mind that, you know, the root of murder, the anger, the hatred. No, never mind that. Externally, I've not done it. Ma. I'm righteous already. I've got one point in my righteousness card. Or consider another example. You shall not commit adultery. How did the, how did the Pharisees interpret this law? Oh, it's just a physical act of adultery. That's it. So, question. Anyone here committed adultery recently? Or maybe I put it this way. Anyone of here have not committed adultery recently? Oh, also no hands raised. Huh? <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying, right? External confirmation. I've not done it. Oh, good. I'm righteous. I got one more check box tick. Never mind what's, what's going on in my heart. doesn't matter. That's, externally, I've done it. Okay? I'm righteous. So the Pharisees, they reduce the demands of the law. Yeah? They reduce the, the, they limit the scope of the law, <clears throat> make it less demanding. The other way is, they expand the limit of the law. That means to say they, they expanded the scope, they widened the permission of the law, right, to make it more permissive than originally permitted. So example again, look in the text. Huh? The law concerning divorce. So verse 31 says this, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now, divorce was never commanded in the Bible, yeah? Christian marriage is supposed to be a lifelong, exclusive commitment to love one another. It's supposed to reflect God's love for his people. But in certain, certain circumstances and under certain conditions, divorce was permitted in Israel. It's permitted, though not commanded. It's permitted but it's carefully regulated, which means to say you cannot simply go and you know, write a certificate of divorce for just any reason, right? Except on one ground, and Jesus clarified here in verse 32, except for sexual immorality. It's permitted. But otherwise, you cannot simply write a certificate of divorce for just any reason. So, the permission is given, and what did the Pharisees do? They widen it. They make it more permissive. They say you could apply for divorce for any reasons. Hence, the, 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 the law here, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That's it. Simple. So, you know, if your wife, she's a bad cook, she's not pretty enough, and so on, 
All you need to do is give her a legal paper and then you are free to go and marry another. Right? So that's the interpretation and application of the law as the Pharisees saw it. And here's how another way they misinterpreted the law. They added additional clauses to it. So verse 43 says, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now the first half is clearly a command from the Bible. It's from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Do you see anything amiss there? You don't see the word hate your enemy there, right? So that's an addition to the law that the Pharisees added in a way to justify their hate of certain people. People who are not of the same um, race or religion as them, the, the non-Jews, the Gentiles. So this become a law that the Pharisees rationalized to say, hey, we're fine, we only love ourselves, we don't need to love the Gentiles. Yeah? So there are many other examples and we won't go through that. But the point I want to make here is simply this. It is not devotion or sincerity that is a problem. We can be sincere, but sincerely wrong. Yeah? It's in the interpretation of the law that is wrong that the Pharisees have um, committed. The misinterpretation. So we notice that God's law is a blessing meant to give life. But the Pharisees have killed the law. They've killed the spirit of the law. They were overly legalistic in their interpretation of the law and thereby they were able to avoid some of its radical and dynamic application. Right? So what they did was basically they made the law into a perversion. They stretched it here, they stretched it there like some Play-Doh or Rotichana, you know. And one of the things that Jesus came to do is basically to correct this perversion in understanding, this perversion of the law. He's like the referee who steps back into the field to put back the goalpost. He corrects the teaching. He gives its true meaning. And here, where it might get a bit more un uncomfortable for some of us, he makes parts of the law even more demanding. So we see this, right? The Pharisees said the no murder law that's only limited to the deed of murder, homicide. But Jesus says it includes angry thoughts. It includes insulting words too. Anyone of us here gotten angry with someone recently? Anyone of here uh, called a person a fool, an idiot, a moron? Anyone? Well, if you have, According to this law, and the law is still valid, we are subject to judgment. We are in danger of hellfire. How about this? The Pharisees said, only the external act of adultery counts as sin. But Jesus says, it's also the thoughts. Anyone who looks at the woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. So anyone of here look lustfully at the woman recently or the man? If you think it's not a big deal, huh? it's look only ma, right? Well, look at what verses 29 to 30 says. If your right hand causes, sorry, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. Or if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it, cut it out, cut it off, throw it away. Now this is not meant to be taken literally, but it's not meant to be taken lightly either. We don't take this literally, but we don't take this lightly. 
We have to take this seriously. It simply means that we have to, we have to take the radical steps, right, to avert our eyes, stay our hands. Because that's how we, I'm talking about men, that's how we commit adultery, right? It's through our eyes, through the hands. And God says, cut it off, remove it. Basically, take that radical step, look away, don't touch. That's it. Don't break this law. Not ask the woman to cover up, but take actions on your, your own actions. There's actually not much time for us to look through all the laws in depth. But the point I want to make is simply this, that God's law is much deeper. It's much more demanding than we thought. We thought the Pharisees were strict, but Jesus, wow, he's even more stricter, even more demanding in interpretation and application of the law. And we have to grapple what that means for us. Right? We shouldn't just dismiss it, rationalize it. We have to grapple with it, what that means for us. We have to consider Jesus' word about setting aside, you know, God's law, teaching others to do the same. We have to consider his words. If we do this, we will be called the least in kingdom of heaven. We have to grapple what that means for each one of us here. Our life record is up to standard. Have we failed God's law in some ways? Are we under judgment? If we say that God's law is too valid, it is, then all the implications of the law, as Jesus, in, as Jesus interpreted, applies to us. We are not exempted from the law. We are not free to lower the standards of God's commands. If any, we are to follow the law more completely than the Pharisees were doing. We have to surpass their righteousness. We have to be greater than them. We have to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Which brings me to my third point. Perfect righteousness is required in, enter, in order to enter God's word. So verse 28 is the conclusion to Jesus' teaching on righteousness. How to be righteous. Be perfect. That's a very high standard, isn't it? How can we be perfect? The Bible says no one is righteous. No, not one. And deep down in our hearts, we all know this. We cannot be perfect. We cannot attain God's perfection. We will always fall short. Let me tell you a story, children's story. A mouse was playing under the bushes when the cat spotted it and chase it all the way to the fields. So the mouse was scared to death, so he called out for his fairy godmother and asked that it be transformed to a cat. And so the mouse became a cat. And one day, the same cat that was formerly a mouse was bouncing in the field when a dog spotted it and chased it all the way to the forest. The cat was scared to death, and so he called out for his fairy godmother and requested that it be transformed into a dog. And so the, dog, the cat became a dog. And one sunny day, the dog was searching for food in the forest when a tiger spotted it and chased it all the way to the river. The dog was scared to death. They called out for his fairy godmother and begged that it be transformed to a tiger. And so the dog became a tiger. So one morning at sunrise, the tiger was prowling in the hills when it spotted a couple of 
native hunters who chased it all the way to the jungles. The tiger was scared to death, so he called out for his very godmother and demanded that he be transformed to a native hunter. And now this time, the fairy godmother spoke. I have transformed you from a mouse to a cat, from a cat to a dog, from a dog to a tiger, and now you want to be transformed from a tiger to a native hunter. Now I can make you whatever you wish to become. But if your heart remains to be the heart of a mouse, you will always live in fear. What does this story tell us? Is that the heart matters, isn't it? What the, what the mouse needs is not more external transformation, but internal transformation. The mouse needs a new heart. If his heart remains to be a heart of a mouse, he will always remain in fear. Same thing with us. What we need is a new heart. If a heart remains the same old, same old, no matter how much effort we put in to be right with God, we will never be right with God. We will always fail. We will continue to rationalize our way and we will never have a, that perfect life record that is worthy of God's acceptance. If any of us here thought, nah, I'm okay. I may not be perfect, but I'm good enough. I don't have a problem. Well, please allow scripture to search your heart. Yeah. We might appear good on the outside, we might appear decent fellow on the outside, but our hearts will sell us out. The world says, follow your heart, but the Bible says, watch out. Your heart is deceitful. When temptation comes, our way, or when we are under a lot of stress at work or at home, then we will find our hearts will betray us. But God is concerned about our hearts. The heart is what is broken in our human conditions. You know, it is what causes us to murder, to have that thoughts, anger that wants to murder. It is what makes us look lustfully at the woman and all the others uh, unrighteousness that we do. But God wants to restore our hearts. He wants to write His law there so that we can begin to live righteously for him, so that we can be perfect as he is perfect. And here's the good news. We can have this perfect righteousness, this greater righteousness of the heart. And it's right here, the good news is right here, stated at the beginning of our text this morning, verse 17. I have not come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. Now, we cannot fulfill God's standards on our own merit but Jesus can. He can meet the demands of the law, both moral and legal. For that is why he came. He's the only one who can because he has a spotless life record. Everything he does, he did in life, everything he said, everything he thought about while he was on earth, is perfect. It's, it's without sin. And when he died on the cross for our sins, he took our sins he took our imperfect life record as his own. And he gave us perfect righteousness. He gave us his perfect life record as our own. So in other words, his righteousness was imputed to us, ascribed to us, and our unrighteousness imputed to him, ascribed to him. So Jesus was treated as if he had broken the law, while we are treated as if we had fulfilled the law entirely. So that when, when God opens our life record at the end, 
He sees not our broken life record. He sees our perfect life record. He sees Christ's righteousness in us. And we can have this perfect righteousness, this greater righteousness than the Pharisees. That's how we can attain that kind of righteousness. Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The question then, having been made righteous, how are we to live? How are we to express our gratitude to God for this gift of righteousness, for this perfect life record? Do we now live as if the law is no more? You know, Jesus has covered us. We are now free to live the way we like. Everything is by grace. If we sin, never mind. Grace is there. You just cover us and we continue again. Do we live in that manner anymore? No. We go back to the law. God's word, his law, becomes the standard for, for our living as it is meant to be. And this is what the law was set out to do, to accomplish. The law convicts us of our sin. It sends us to Christ who made us right. And having been made right, Christ sent us back to the law to now learn the heart of God to know what it means to live according to his law for our sanctification, for our lifelong growth into the image of God. And you know, we are not left on our own to do this. The Holy Spirit will come to us and enable us to obey God's law. The Holy Spirit who indwells in all believers right, will write God's perfect law in our hearts so that we can follow his law, we can be perfect, we can attain righteousness in the Lord in Christ. So God's law is still valid. We are still under its authority and we are not to disregard any parts of God's commandments so that it's easier for us to obey. Right? And God's law is also deeper, much deeper than we thought and demands our entire obedience. But I want to say to you that it is not a burdensome law. God's law is not burdensome, it's not annoying, it's not restrictive, it's not a killjoy that takes away our life. The law is good. It is God's generous gift to us, bringing blessings, bringing blessings of the kingdom when obeyed. So it's a little bit like, say, ballroom dancing. How many of you here knows how to dance or know the rules of dancing? So it's like ballroom dancing. Yeah? If we don't know the rules, then we don't know how to dance. But if we know the rules, if we learn the rules, we follow it, then we can dance. We can dance together It'll be a beautiful thing. You'll be full of joy, full of life, full of hope. But only we need to know the law. We need to understand the rules and then to follow it with all our hearts. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. <clears throat> your word is true. Your word is living. Your word is active. And your word, Lord, teaches us what it means to be righteous. Lord, would you please help us to follow your word to the letter, to the spirit. Grant us, Lord, the joy, the blessing as we learn to obey you, as we learn to follow everything that Jesus commanded. And Lord, as we go, we go with the law of the Lord guiding our steps. Lord, would you lead us as, we, as you guide our step? Would you lead us to streams of living water? Would you lead us to life? Life in you, life in your word, 
life in your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.